Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please also check out my other podcast, Kids Do Have Time to Read Books. I'm on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Kids Do Have Time to Read. So please follow me. And if at any time you have suggestions, my email is zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much to my latest sponsor, the Mermaid Pillow Company, mermaidpillowco.com. They make these amazing pillows with sequins on the back and positive messages on the front. And they now even make custom pillows and blankets. It's an amazing company. And if you enter the code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, you will get 10% off, which is super cool. So please check them out, mermaidpillowco.com. I'm excited to be interviewing Julie Sato today, who's the author of The Plaza, The Secret Life of America's Most Famous Hotel. Julie is an award-winning journalist who has covered real estate in New York for over a decade. She's a regular contributor to the New York Times, and her work has appeared on NPR, HuffPost, Modern Loss, Cabeller, and the New York Post, among others. A native New Yorker, she currently lives in New York City with her husband and two children. Hi, Julie. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor. Oh. <laughs> After you were on the Today Show yesterday, this will probably be a piece of cake. <laughs> well, that was taped, so it's not it's airing taped. for a little while. So it was like a little, the pressure was off slightly. Okay. Yes. This is also taped. Yes, so, right. Exactly. Yeah. The yes. Bushes and I, you know, we, uh, same thing. Exactly. You know. So congratulations on the plaza. Thank you so, so much. Exciting. Thank you. So can you please tell listeners what the plaza is about and what inspired you to write it? Yes. The Plaza is a biography of the hotel, but it's also a social history of New York. So I use it as a lens to tell a social history from 1907 through today of what was happening in New York and the country and through the stories of the Plaza. Why was I inspired to write it? I've covered real estate for a long time in New York, and I grew up here, so the plaza was always like a, you know, presence. Right, like you go to Central Park after school, sometimes in the afternoons, and it was always there, and my grandmother used to stay there. I also was married there. Tomorrow, Thursday, will be my 10-year anniversary, so (laughs) it's coming full circle. So yeah, and and beside the personal stuff, I, I felt like what's really cool about the plaza is that really it's like a mirror. Everything that's happening in New York and everything that's happened around the country happens at the plaza. So whether it's union tensions, business trends, even today, you know, condominiums and and foreign investors, just no matter what the trend is, it seems that the plaza reflects that. So it was a really rich topic. To me, when I read it, it's like the plaza was just the set, but the story was something else. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, it that's wasn't true. Actually, it, it seemed to me like it wasn't the history of the plaza itself. As much. I mean, it was. Yeah. But it was also just this amazing story of culture and yeah. life and all the characters in yeah. it. And that was like the backdrop. Yeah, totally. Like, that's right. Like it was a like play. an excuse. <laughs> yeah, it's like a play <laughs> where that would be the set of the play and then... Yeah. Anyway. Um. that Well, no, that was totally like, you know, I, I kind of just went where I was interested. So I found all these amazing stories that I had never heard of before, even though I, th- I thought I knew the plaza. I feel like a lot of people think they know the plaza. You know, yeah. they know Eloise, they know whatever. But I discovered all these stories. And so I, it was like a great excuse just to tell a bunch of stories, I yeah. felt like. No, you're, and you're such a good storyteller. Oh, I mean, literally, from the minute it opens up, you're in it, right? Oh, like. Awesome. 
awesome. The Vanderbilt getting out of his car, right? Was he a Vanderbilt? Yes, yes yeah. he was. Vanderbilt <laughs> getting out of his car and walking in and the girl on the counter. I mean, the whole thing, it's so visual the whole way. Oh, that's so awesome. Anyway, I thought it was awesome. Yeah. You start the book with this great introduction, which you wrote in the first person, which was great because not always, they don't, you know, that was know. a nice, it was really nice oh, introduction because I felt like it was you telling the story and maybe because I met you. No. But, so in the introduction, you said the intention of the book was in part to memorialize the 111-year history of the plaza, but also that the plaza was like the giving tree, like Shel Silverstein's giving tree, and that everybody was taking a piece. Can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's had like multiple owners since the beginning. And it really, because it's such like an icon, people are very, people who are attracted, who, who want to own it, they want a trophy property. So it really is about... A lot of times for the owners, it's about vanity, it's about branding. So they sort of use the plaza for their own self-aggrandizement. So I felt like, you know, obviously owners have loved the hotel and cared for it, but a lot of times they've sort of used it for their own their own ends. So for instance, Harry Black was the first owner, and he actually, he's this interesting character in and of himself. He like also did the flat iron building and all this stuff. But he, you know, for him, the plaza, he lived in the penthouse, and it really was his calling card and part of his identity. And you may know, right, you read the book, so, you know, he like tried to commit suicide in the bathtub of yeah. the hotel after he lost a lot of money during the 1929 crash. And there was just a lot of, you know, Conrad Hilton used the, the hotel as sort of his entree into New York and trying to become this big player. Before that, Conrad Hilton was considered this Westerner, this sort of this uncouth Texan. He comes to New York and he, you know, buys the plaza and all of a sudden everyone takes him seriously. Obviously, Donald Trump owned it. You know, he bought it at the height of sort of the go-go 80s, at the height of his you know, fame as a real estate developer. And, you know, so I feel like it was often sort of used, you know, more recently, the last owner was this guy, Sabrata Roy from India. And I guess he's the sort of most extreme example where he bought the hotel and then obviously he got into some legal issues at home in India. And he really did siphon off any money that the hotel was making for his own legal and criminal issues back in India. So... I feel like you had some line where it was like, who knew walking by that like the owner is actually like in some random prison in India? Yes, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you just didn't know. Right. People but don't know that. Yeah. And I think people w- would go into the hotel and be like, wow, it, it doesn't have that same feeling that it used to have. So I felt like with the giving tree, you know, it's like this this boy loves this tree, but he just keeps taking from it, you know, until there's really nothing left and the tree keeps giving of itself. So I felt kind of like the plaza had done the same thing. You know, it sort of gave every piece of itself over to these no, owners. Just has the palm has, court. It's <laughs> just this one little place. <laughs> it's it's so sad. kind of sad. Yeah. <laughs> you also wrote this book. I'm going to quote: "This book is a history of the one percent of celebrity, of pop culture, and gossip." It also examines how the plaza is ground zero for the increasing globalization of money and the slow decoupling of pedigree from wealth. So it's like from Alfred Gwynne Vanderbilt to Kim Kardashian, right? Mm -hmm. It's like the ultimate. So talk to me a little more about the shift, how in the beginning you paint a portrait of the plaza being like the ultimate place for high society and how people would— 
actually move in there for all the amenities. Mm-hmm. And now, now, of course, it's, I mean, now people are back to moving in, right. but it's completely it's true. different. But it is true. I think that it's sort of the story of money, the story of wealth. And I, I think in some ways wealth has changed. You know, it was Alfred Gwynne Vanderbilt was the first guest. He was one of the country's wealthiest men. You know, there were more than 1,600 chandeliers at the plaza and, and you know, two men whose only job was just to dust the chandeliers. I mean, the opulence was just amazing, right? And now wealth is much more about investment. It might be a foreign investment. You know, uh, the, the plaza is largely condominiums. A lot of the really glamorous rooms where all the stars used to stay facing Central Park are now, you know, multi-million dollar apartments owned by absentee owners, many of whom don't even stay there or have never even been there and really use it as an investment. And I think that's sort of what's happened with wealth. It's become much more of a commodity, less of a lifestyle. So the plaza reflects that. You have that sad line where like all the corridors are dark because everybody who owns them like never goes it's to those really floors. Sad. It's just like this almost abandoned wonderland or something. I know. And you know, it's been an issue. It's it's happening across New York. You know, I think actually you had mentioned in one of your emails like how, you know, today people are moving back into hotel. So in the beginning, people did live in, in the plaza. Yes, like, that was a like, question I had. Oh, wait, sorry. Did my jumping ahead? No, okay. no, I'll ask it now. Okay. No, I had said that I didn't realize that hotel, even the words hotel and apartment at the beginning were synonymous because now obviously they're not. And I was wondering, is it the same? Do you think it was the same then getting all those extra perks as families who want to move into apartment buildings in the city that have playrooms and a concierge who does dry cleaning? Or do you think this is the modern day kind of clubby, like 15 Central Park West type of building? Or is it like a Hudson Yards where they have the new, you know, I don't, you know. Right. It's so funny when I read that email because I was like, I'm writing that story for the New York Times right now. About Hudson Yards? <laughs> no, about how people used to live in hotels and how it's sort of, they're coming back to that idea now today. How it used to be that hotels and, and apartments, as you said, were sort of synonymous and a lot of, 90% of the people who checked into the plaza in 1907 lived there full time. It was their home. And how today a lot of condominiums have become a lot like hotels with all of these amenities. You know, you have private lounges and restaurants that cater to the residents. And, it, you know, 432 Park is essentially, in many ways, has a lot of the amenities of a hotel. So I do think there's, we're like returning to that. The plaza now, I think, is, you know, it is like the Time Warner Center or 4 32 Park or any of these new right. towers we're seeing rising, you know, where it offers, you know, a lot of the benefits of a hotel, but there's still apartments. <laughs> but there's something about the plaza now, which has a feel to me like almost like New Orleans or something, or like oh, a place that used to be, you know, you can feel the history. Yeah. And yet it's like, not run down is the wrong word. Mm-hmm. There's still so much charm in well, New Orleans and everything. But, there, but the the... You know it's what, a little you know like, what? yeah, like, you know, rough around the edges now at the plaza. I mean, for instance, I had like a, I was doing an interview with one of the waiters who's worked at the Palm Court for like, he used to be at the Oyster Bar. He's worked there forever. He's been there for like 40 or 50 years. This guy, Luigi. And he was like, look around at the dishes and you'll see that they don't match because every time someone breaks a dish, we just like replace it. We don't have matching dishes. So a lot of the tea service are not even 
magic anymore. And that was really, and that was really the case, as I said, like that when the owner was this Indian guy, Sabrata Roy, he was really siphoning all the money away from the hotel to help himself. And there was just really no money going back into the hotel. Last year in June, so exactly a year ago, the Qatari government bought the hotel and they obviously have a lot of wealth. So I, I tried to end it on a more positive note saying, I hope these new owners are going to actually give it that love and attention that it needs because it is a very expensive endeavor to upkeep it. You know, it's this ancient, it's this historic building. I think also like because the residences are cut off from the, the, it's its own entryway. You're not allowed to go in there. It's sort of very divided. I think it's created this awkward feeling too. I mean, I can't even imagine the expenses related to this. You said there were fifteen hundred in help in the beginning. Yes, you know, you said, that's yeah. I mean, I don't know how many people work there now, but not that many. <laughs> not as many as that. Yes, back in the day, yeah. I mean, it made sense back in the day to have these huge grand hotels, but if you look around in New York, they, we really don't have that now. A lot of the hotels are more boutique. Mm-hmm. Even the Waldorf Astoria, which is not the historic Waldorf Astoria, but it you know it's now being made into condominiums too. It's just so expensive here in New York. I still find it confusing why, like in London, you have these grand hotels that are so beautiful, like the Dorchester or something. They seem to make it work there. But here it's I think gone um, away. I used to know, I mean, I know analytically that rent and everything is high, yeah. commercial real estate and everything. But I have to say, I just recently started investigating because I'm thinking about opening a little bookstore somewhere oh, in the city, which I'm really cool. excited about. But I started looking at rents and I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> like, first of all, it's like double on Madison. And I mean, I know yes. this from like looking at, you know. But you don't realize how- Residential real estate, but just how on earth could I sell enough to justify that rent? Like, I'd have to think of something. Anyway, so when I think about something with the square footage of the plaza, it must be astronomical. Yes. It doesn't really make sense, but there's nothing that can be done because it's a landmark building, so they could not tear it down. In, like, the 1960s, they made it landmark. So, basically, it protected the building, thank goodness, and it saved the plaza. But, like, Hilton, for instance, actually, in the 1960s, before it was landmarked, was, like, trying to convince the owners at the time that they should tear it down and build an office building, like what happened to the GM. But that would be so sad. Yeah. I'm really glad they didn't do that. I know, exactly. But, yeah, the real estate is... Is, you know, it's hard to it's to right. do that dance. I yeah. guess <laughs> I feel like this should be a Downton Abbey. <laughs> Limited series. Have you talked to, are you making this into um, a movie or something? I, I Please tell my agent that. Okay, uh, I will. I do have <laughs> Agent, do, I'm calling you. This exactly. is my idea. I can see the whole thing in my head. Well, I do have a film agent who's like shopping, been shopping around for scripted series, but so far nothing. I'm hoping that maybe. Well, it hasn't maybe, even come out yet. I know, that's true. So maybe when it comes out, I do know that there's another book that just, that's out about the Chateau Mormont in oh, LA. Uh-huh. That's right. And, yeah. and that's being made into an HBO series. So maybe. Maybe, maybe I lost my chance. I don't know. But I feel that That's we so need different. a New York version. That is so different. That, <laughs> right. that is a totally different... It's more about like... No, this is more like... Old glamour. Yes, old glamour. Right, I agree. I wrote it very, like, upstairs, downstairs is how I, you know, I tried to do the the wealthy guests, but also the people who work there. Did you think about doing it as, (laughs) let me just read you the book for you. (laughs) I'm just wondering if you you thought about doing it as historical fiction and having all of this as the backdrop, but having some, like, story of some. I mean, I think it would be amazing. I have the worst 
imagination. <laughs> I am like, I'm a journalist and I feel like that would have been fantastic. <laughs> and if a screenwriter out there would like to buy the rights and do that, I'm fully into it. <laughs> I, I feel like there's a lot of germs like that could be expanded out into great fiction. Yeah. <laughs> so not by me. in your Goodreads, description. You mentioned that doing the research at the New York Public Library was one of your favorite parts of this project. And then you said elsewhere that you had read over a million articles, okay. which is insane. Yeah, that is insane. insane. So when I like, I was like, I'm like, she must have started really this true? when she was four. <laughs> I know, exactly. So I actually was like, when I was fact checking the book, I was like, mm, maybe I shouldn't say, I, I changed that to tens of thousands, oh. which I, which is like, oh, you actually, did? Okay. Yeah, I only I have did. the old version. Love the galley. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Because I, I tried to count. So the research I'm was... my son. One, <laughs> two, three. That was basically me. It was really, yeah. So the research for me was so amazing. First of all, I was in the Allen room at the library and it was so cool because it's named for this guy who's first name is escaping me right now, but he wrote these amazing histories of the 1920s and 1930s, and I used his research in the book, so it was, like, very cool. And, yeah, the library was amazing being there, and what was so cool is that they have digitized all newspapers now. So many newspapers are digitized. So it's, like, revolutionary, I feel like, for a researcher, because you don't have to use microfiche. So I didn't need to know the date of a newspaper I was looking for. I could just use keywords. And, yeah, tens of thousands of articles came up with Plaza Hotel and New York. And I basically combed through all of them from 1890 through 2017, 2018. It's amazing. <laughs> and yeah, it was it was intense. But I discovered all these stories, so it was like super cool. That's awesome. Yeah. I love hearing stories of people actually using libraries. Oh my God, it was amazing. And the, the librarians also, because they were just so awesome. Like I met with this librarian, John, who I think in my book, he was a financial, he's like knows about all the finances. So he helped me find all the old annual reports for the original company that built the plaza. And I was able to, my original version of the book was much more business heavy. <laughs> I, I, I pulled that back somewhat, but it was so cool, like, just figuring all of that out and reading the old documents. It was amazing. I'm on the library council at the New York yeah. Public Library. If you ever want to get involved. Oh, really? Maybe I'll have For you. sure. I'm going to bring For you sure. to the next I event. Do, I or told something. my publicist, I was like, I want to be in that, the summer reads thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I'm in it, but anyway, I tried. That, um, that I have nothing to do with. <laughs> but but yeah. I'm working on my own summer reads list. Oh, really? Yes, oh, cool. Well, yet, so. <laughs> Not that it's the same as the <laughs> right. millions of New York Public Library people. Yeah. Do you have any things that stand out, of, aside from your wedding, maybe, of things that happened to you in the plaza that tie you to it emotionally? You said you're teased with your grandma. and Yeah, I mean, obviously, my wedding is probably... I, you know what? So, I wish I kept a diary, because I would have loved to have remembered, like, why I picked the plaza, you know, like, of all the places in New York, what that was about, my, yeah. my thought process at the time. But I think I just always felt like, you know, it's it's an icon, like, the Brooklyn Bridge or the Empire State Building, I feel like. And for a long time, it was kind of the like living room of New Yorkers. I feel like yeah. a lot of people, when you know, you'd know, you be shopping in Midtown and you needed a restroom, yes. it had the most beautiful restroom and you could go in or you could just sit in, in the lobby and listen to music in the Palm Court and just kind of hang out for a little while. You know, It was this beautiful resting space. And I, I feel like that is not necessarily the case so much now, but so it just was always it felt very, I felt very at home there, yeah. even though it wasn't my home, <laughs> you know. 
So my favorite experience in yeah. the plaza, I might have told you no. this when we had tea there or whatever. No. So I used to write letters to authors. I sound so creepy, but I've like, <laughs> I know I'm serious. I love books and I've always been really interested. So cool. So when I was a little girl, I would like write letters. I would like look up the publisher in the back and my no. mom would help me find the address. That's and amazing. I would send, I would like handwrite in my script letters to authors. And there was one author named Zibby O'Neill. So no, my stop. name is Zibby and I, I hadn't know. really heard of any other Zibbies. So I wrote her a letter. Is that your real name? Or Elizabeth. That, oh, okay. Got it. So I hand wrote her a letter and I sent it to her publisher and like it got to her in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And she wrote me back and we had this pen pal relationship no, stop. for like that two years. So and then finally she came to New York and she picked me up in my apartment and took me to tea at the plaza. No, yes. It was so sweet. I wore this, like, shoulder-padded, <laughs> matching, like, blouse and skirt. I can see it in my mind. so awful. Um, oh, my God. But I thought I was with, like, the biggest rock star of all time. Like, to meet an author. Wow. Like, oh, my gosh. So. That is the cutest story <laughs> anyway, ever. Wait, did she know what you're doing now? Like, have you kept in touch with her? I actually tried to find her recently on Instagram and She's Facebook, and cool. I couldn't find her. And I'm – I – Anyway, I'm gonna keep digging. Wow. But I have is, to reconnect. Oh yeah, my gosh, you this do. was like, oh my gosh, so many years ago. <laughs> That's adorable. 30 plus. Anyway, so can we switch to yeah. this? Mod- okay, so your modern loss article. I know. I have to say, first of all, I, had, I don't have to talk. No, no. I had coffee the other day with Rebecca Stover. Oh, I, was so, I know. So we were, I was like, I'm going on. Oh. So we were talking about so that. So Modern Loss, the founder and editor of the website Modern Loss, Rebecca Sofer, was on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Yes. And for her book, Modern Loss Candid Conversation. Conversations on grief. And so that's what we're talking about. But she has this website where people can, it's like the Huff Post of grief. Yes. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> you just keep she it around long that. enough. I know. <laughs> so you wrote this really, I was so, I just, I hadn't heard this about you and I didn't oh. realize your brother had yeah. died and I didn't realize he had died from suicide at age 20. Yeah. And I just, the article you wrote was, oh my, it was like shocking and moving and beautiful and oh, thank you so I much. like read it twice last night oh, no did? really I under the house it was oh, called, it yeah. was so good oh thank you anyway that was the one that was on modern loss yeah. Right? yeah okay so you tell about your family to sort of get over the grief buying a house way up north and basically shoving all of his belongings in the basement including a car that they continued to pay car insurance on just to sort of like still there oh my gosh out of sight out of mind type of thing and you had this quote and you said from the beginning during those terrible months my parents stuck to my surviving brother and me like an octopus suctioning its tentacles to a rock in a strong current if they let go they thought they would float away oh yeah. Anyway, and then you wrote another one called From a Distance, which tackled sort of the same subject. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about your decision to write openly about this. Why in this piece? Why now? Yeah. All this. It is a weird thing because as a journalist, you're very like third person. So it was scary. <laughs> I wasn't sure how my family would take it. They've been very supportive. I thought it was very cathartic. You know, I, I have known Gabby, who's the other founder of Modern Loss for a long time. We worked together years ago and she lost her parent, her father and stepmother. And I knew her not long after my brother had committed suicide. So we really bonded on that. So when she started Modern Loss with Rebecca, I was always sort of involved and was like a contributing editor and stuff for a little while. And so I felt like I wanted to contribute to them and contribute to their amazing project. So I sort of 
did this thing that was a little out of character for me. Yeah, I feel like the one thing I have is my writing. So it's it's hard when you lose someone to keep the memory alive and also to do that person justice. Jed was so young that he didn't really like get a chance to make a huge mark in, in you know, in the greater world he did amongst us with its friends and family, but I felt like maybe it's a way to kind of you know, keep keep that memory out there in, in a wider way. My my parents, as maybe you know, have a foundation yes. that they started, which so that was sort of their thing. You know, I I wasn't really necessarily very involved in the beginning. It was like kind of painful, but now I am more involved. But so this was more my thing, I guess. <laughs> Had you used writing to help you through that yes. before, just privately? Or? Yes, privately. Yes, I for many years I kept a diary and. I remember. I mean, I was in so much shock after he died. It's just, it was so, he was not diagnosed with any mental illness. It was a long time ago. It was in the late 90s. So it was way before mental health had sort of reached the, you know, it wasn't as acknowledged or known about at the time. And so he was never really diagnosed with anything. He was always just sort of a little wild and crazy and funny and very charismatic and emotional. But it wasn't, you know, we had no concept that young people can have depression and it can look very different from what, you know, as someone just wanting to sleep all the time. And, and you know, we just weren't, we weren't really educated. So it was such a shock that I like had a really hard time processing it for maybe the first few years. And so writing, yeah, writing just for myself was a way to kind of get those thoughts out. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was weird. I know. It's, it's sad. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Do you feel like it changed the trajectory of your life? Like, do you feel like it's a moment, like you put a pin in and it goes a different way? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in a weird way, I'm... This is the wrong word. Not I'm not grateful for it, but I feel like I live a much better life now because of it. You know, because I'm just so much more conscious of what life is about. And I feel like at first I was I was not, you know, I was a little crazy. I didn't really know how to process what had occurred, but as I sort of got through the grief process, I feel like I've made very conscious decisions about my life and what I do. And that's a direct result of going through this like insane loss and knowing how precious life is. It sounds so, so cliche. Not at all. But, I don't think that, that you not know? at all. Yeah. And I feel like I'm a much better parent and wife and just I feel like even the book, you know, none of that would have been possible without sort of the intention. I feel like I live my life with now that before I didn't. So I have like more appreciation for things, you know? I think that until you've gone through a loss, it's hard to, like, you can know something intellectually and not live by Mm -hmm. it because you don't. But once your world has been shook up like that, it's hard to go back. That's so true. I agree. Which yeah. also sounds cliche, but yeah, it, no, it's, um, <laughs> but it's true. I mean, and so the Jed Foundation. Now you're involved with that. Yes, I'm on the board now. It really is an amazing organization. If I can, so it's named for my brother, and it basically it helps educate high schools, colleges, and we're even working now with younger with younger kids because the diagnoses are happening so much younger now, helping them 
deal with how to help kids, basically. So there's a program that works with the colleges on instituting certain best practices to make sure that they're really helping all the students get through what can be a very stressful process, college. And now we're we're starting the same program for high school. And we have a so pilot great. program in New York with a few schools we're working with now. And then they're also doing something with the public school system in the city, fifth through eighth grade. So I really do think it's saving lives and helping. And I think also Jed Foundation was really, I mean, when we started, like I said, nobody really knew mm-hmm. about kids and, you know, bipolar or, or depression or what it is. And I think we've really like raised so much awareness. So I'm proud of it. You know, I'm on the board of the Child Mind Institute. Yes. I yes. feel like we should do something together. I know. We should have like a. I know. And I feel like they, well, I think they've, they, 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 definitely, work together? they definitely know of each other. I'm not sure like what projects they've done together, but yes, they work in a similar space. Yeah. Well, maybe we can. Yeah. I don't know. That would be cool. That would be Just amazing. To raise awareness for. Yeah, I absolutely. Know, I also loved your piece on Joan Rivers and oh. how, when she, how she was always, no, seriously, how she was always so open about her husband's suicide and how yeah. she didn't couch it and how refreshing that was. How yeah. it like helps get it out there. How it almost like helps you, if you can say it, it helps you process like the, like your shock and how you feel isn't. You can see it on someone else's yeah. face, like a mirror. Right. I'm it not was, explaining that no, well. No, no, I know what you're saying. Like, I felt so weird for so long. Like, people were always like, oh, there's the girl whose brother committed suicide, you know? You kind of ha- carry this, like, weird... And people are, are so awkward around you because they don't know how to bring it up or how to discuss it or people don't want to discuss it. And, and you know, you do want to talk about it. Like, you want, I want to talk about my brother. Like, I loved him, you know? So it is this, like, weird thing. And so when someone... And she was... I mean, this was... She was talking about suicide way, way early on, you know? So I feel like, yeah, it's it's great to break those... You know, it's much... In some weird ways, it's easier to talk. If someone has cancer, it's like, okay, you know, it's 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 less scary, maybe, right. you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So thank you, Joan. (laughs) Thank you for sharing your experience. And I'm sure it helps so much other people who are going through this who might not be able, don't have the forum to express how they feel. And anyway, it was just... uh, Oh, thank you so much. Now you have to write a memoir. (laughs) Yes. Nobody wants to know. Yes, they do. (laughs) Yes, they do. I swear to God. That's what like so many good memoirs are Only if you write one. I feel like you need to write one too. (laughs) I'm working on one. Oh, there you go. Okay, well, aside from my idea, for your next book. Okay. What what else do you have coming up? Are you thinking about writing anything new? Are you going yes. to do more journalism? I know you're an avid writer already. Yes, I am working on my proposal for my next book. It's been like a little hard because I've been trying to do publicity for yeah. this book, which is coming out in like two weeks, which is crazy. But yes, I am. I have an idea. I'm working on it. It has nothing to do with real estate. Or New York, actually. But I think it'll be really cool. And I'm excited for it. Hopefully I'm sending good good energy out there <laughs> that it'll get done. Yeah, so I'm hoping to be done with it in the next week or two. And then start, you know, talking to my agent more about it. So. Excellent. Yeah. Do you have any parting advice to aspiring writers? Oh, God. I mean... I feel like in my career, I fought tooth and nail for, for for everything, you know? It was tough, and journalism is hard, and especially now, there's not, you know, there's just, 
it's it's really hard to get, you know, there's just fewer jobs out there. So many more people are freelance. I feel like it really comes down to being accurate. You know, editors really want to make sure that if they trust you and you're, they're taking a pitch, that you're going to be accurate, you're fact-checking, that you know what you're doing, and they can trust you. It's such a trust thing. So I feel like, you know, be really careful when you're pitching and when you're when you're doing stories. I feel like your byline is your calling card. So that's really important. And, you know, just try. I feel like every time I, I walk around, I come up with story ideas. You know, everything around you is always a story idea if you're, if you're looking that way. So I feel like just have that awareness and then, yeah, just go for it. That's awesome. I, I love it. That's great. Is that good? That was I great. Don't know. I loved it. Okay. Thanks for coming on Mom's Don't Have Time to Read. So 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 I know. It's great. Thanks again to my sponsor, Mermaid Pillow Co. Mermaidpillowco.com slash Zibby. Enter code Zibby for 10% off. Thanks so much. Check out those really awesome giftable pillows and blankets. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Zibby Owens and my new podcast at Kids Do Have Time to Read. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 